Welcome to the Upgrade Your Education Business podcast. I'm your host, Samantha. Thank you so much for tuning in today, and I hope that you find this episode useful. If you're new to this podcast, each week I share fluff-free, actionable ideas tailored to education businesses that you can mould to suit your needs. And finally, if you enjoy listening to the podcast, it would mean the world to me if you could leave a review on iTunes or follow and subscribe on whichever platform you choose. Thank you once again for tuning in. Today's episode is an educator's special and is dedicated to tackling six questions that tutors often ask when thinking about transitioning to group classes. I'm sharing a discussion I had a while back with Charlotte Watson from Wonderlearn UK, and I'm afraid it's another one that I recorded before I had bought a professional microphone, so I apologise for the quality of my audio. But here are the six questions we address. Number one, how do I transition to group classes if I'm new to it or known for one-to-one teaching? Number two, how do I decide how much to charge? Number three, what happens if students are at different attainment levels? Number four, how should I manage all the admin like taking bookings and payments? Number five, how do I ensure interactivity and seeing student work when teaching is online? And number six, how do I attract parents and students who are fixed on one-to-one teaching being the best solution? So I hope you enjoy this episode. And if you do, it would be great if you could take a few moments to leave a review. Enjoy. Hi there, I'm Charlotte Watson, also known as Charlotte Baskin Watson, if you search me on Facebook. I run Wonderlearn English Tuition based in Wallington in Surrey. I offer some face-to-face classes and also online group classes. So I've collected a bunch of questions that people have asked. So today we're going to answer them and discuss different ideas. But before we do, I'll quickly talk about our experience so that you can decide whether our ideas and strategies would be useful for you. Now, Charlotte only teaches group classes, which is why I knew she'd have loads of valuable ideas. And her groups have been traditionally face to face, but now they're online. I teach a combination of one-to-one and group classes, but I'm fully online. So between the two of us, we can share insights from different angles. But the one thing I will say is that we both teach relatively small classes. I teach between 10 and 15 students per class. Charlotte teaches between 12 and 16 per class. So although we both run webinars for different purposes, we don't actually teach in that format. So we don't teach classes of hundreds of students. Now, it's important to get that out there, because if that's what you're specifically looking to do, our strategies may not all be useful for you, but I'm sure some of them will be. So, Charlotte, I know that our journeys have been sort of similar because we both started with one to one. We transitioned to groups. So if someone was new to it, what kind of advice would you give them about transitioning to groups if they're specifically known for one to one or if they're actually new to the tutoring world? Okay, well, for me to answer that, the best thing I can do is basically share what I did. I would say the most important thing is I didn't try and do it completely and utterly all in one go. So I transitioned probably over a year. I had to be a little bit patient. I had, let's say, I can't remember exactly how many students I had one to one, but I had about 30, I think. And because I'm lucky as well in that in my area, I am basically working with pupils who are preparing for the 11 plus or who want to raise their grades in GCSE, I was able to group pupils accordingly. So all my year threes, fours and fives, for instance, I made it very clear 
to the parents about six months in advance that I was going to transition to groups for the September. So that was another important thing, giving parents time. It did mean I was in danger of losing people who thought, well, no, I definitely don't want that. So what's the point of staying? But to be honest, I didn't lose anyone. And I think it's about how you explain it. I, I, I really presented all of the positives. And I said how, you know, I'm literally at the moment teaching the same skills and the same lesson over and over again to the same type of pupil. So what's the point? And I said to them, you can gain this from group tuition, you gain interactivity, you gain an atmosphere where there's real collaboration going on. And because they all know they're going for the same goal, you have that kind of energy. So for me, it was about not thinking I could do it overnight, setting up a timetable of when this transition was going to happen. And obviously I grew the groups over a few years. There were some children who wouldn't fit in the group. So I, I kind of committed to working with them for a certain amount of time. Yeah, I love that. I mean, that's actually it kind of overlaps with what we're going to discuss a bit later as well. But it's really important that there are so many benefits from that peer learning environment. And I can understand completely why someone who's not necessarily an educator would think that one-to-one is the best environment. So I teach some of my students one-to-one and they also join my group lessons. And I see a different version of them in the group lesson. They're really excited. They're kind of competitive, but in a very healthy way, aren't they? Definitely. Um, Yeah. And I think that that's, I think what you've said is a really good idea there. I mean, I do meet some educators who haven't really built up their tuition business, but they want to go straight in for group, group tuition, group classes. And I think that's okay, but it is harder. It is harder. And I think that the one thing I learned was that you need to give it time to snowball. Yes. You know, you can't expect full subscription from day one. Sometimes it just takes time. And even if you feel like you're running at a loss, it's still very worth sticking with because you will find that those people will spread the word. They will they will give you repeat business. And, you know, like I said, I mean, I I think that one thing is that with businesses, we often focus on attracting new customers all the time. But I think there's a lot to be said for looking after your existing customers. Absolutely. And when I first launched the group classes, I offered all of my existing one-to-one students a discount. It was kind of a thank you. And and that, you know, really helped to get off to a flying start. So for you, when you were transitioning from one-to-one to group, because like you did an actual transition rather than having it as an addition, would you say that the key was giving people a really a heads up, essentially, so that they were prepared? Definitely for my one-to-ones. I... I think communication is absolutely the key, especially when you're making changes. Um, It doesn't matter what kind of change. So for instance, my timetable is slightly changing for next year. I told them all in February, ready for September. It was September 17, I knew I wanted to start some groups. So I let everyone know who are my current students round about the February time. It gives them time to process it as well, because like you say, I think, For some people, it's like, you know, one to one is the absolute golden kind of holy grail of tuition. And don't get me wrong, as much as I adored you, group tuition, there is a place for one to one. I will never deny that. But for the kind of work I'm doing, it makes sense. It makes absolute sense to do group tuition. But it's, you know, you've got to win the hearts and minds of parents who only know one type of teaching or one type of offering. Yeah. Um, Uh, uh, talking about snowballing I remember when I started up 
um, my year three group. And this was when I was face to face and I was working in my local church hall. And uh, one of the volunteers who kind of looks after the hall saw the lesson. And I think there were I think there were two pupils in it. And he actually said to me, he said, oh, that's not doing very well, is it? And I said to him, you wait, they will come. It's like that old film from the 90s, the field of dreams, build it and they will come. I said, they will come. And sure enough, by about week six, it was full and I had a waiting list. So I think sometimes you've just got to hold your nerve as well. You do. And it's, you know, it gives you social proof as well. So when I first started, you know, I shared little screenshots. I talked about it in my groups. So it gives people that social proof that, you know, I'm doing this. This is what it looks like. This is how it works. And it gives people that confidence. Before we move on to discussing how much to charge, which I know is a really hot topic, I just wanted to ask you one more question about how you how you gave people the heads up. Was it in the form of kind of an announcement or was it something that you drip fed to them over time to manage their expectations? Yes, it was very much because I was obviously working one to one. I literally spoke to every parent and explained what I was doing as then the word grew. When I had more information, then I was able to do it more like a group. Uh, newsletter if you like or a group announcement but I very much started with individuals yeah yeah I think that's I think that would be really interesting to people who are looking to transition um, how to manage that communication how to set those expectations now on to money this podcast is all about doing things your way not following a cookie cutter approach not following a template so we're not going to today tell you how much to charge what we're going to do is help you come up with how to charge, how to decide how much to charge, because there really is no right and wrong. Um, so Charlotte, do you want to kick off with your thoughts about how to come up with those those numbers? I took a, a kind of a, a two-pronged approach. I, I very much thought in my own head what my value was based on my skills, experience, knowledge, etc., qualifications. So I, I, I very much wanted to make sure I didn't devalue myself Obviously, it had to be in relation to what my one to one price had been and obviously be lower than that and seem like good value. The other thing I did do, because as much as you don't want to start comparing yourself, it's all very well saying you're going to charge so much. But then if everyone reacts and says, well, no one else is charging that in the area who may be equally as, you know, skilled or qualified as you, that would be tricky. So I did kind of research the local area and look at generally what people were charging. I mean, to be honest, it was a range. There was some ridiculously, as far as I'm concerned, ridiculously cheap charging going on there. And um, I looked at the type of person who was charging that, the skills, qualifications, and I was like, no way. I know I can guarantee an excellent service which will provide this much value because of what I can offer and what I do. I am definitely going to charge more than that. I I decided I wasn't going to be the most expensive, but I certainly wasn't going to be cheap. And so I decided to pitch myself definitely in the top quarter of what was being charged. But then I absolutely made sure I could explain why I was that charge and why I felt I was actually that value. And it's how you show that you are actually for that price, good value for money. Yeah, I, I did something similar. I mean, for me, the research was a bit different because I established my groups online in the first place. So I couldn't really research local tutors. 
you know, I've got I've got students who are who join from other countries. So yes. it's, it's impossible for me to do that. But, you know, when you do look around, there are people who are charging, you know, a couple of pounds for a lesson. Uh, some people are charging lots for a lesson. And I think that the important thing is, is that while understanding where you are in the market is part of it, I don't think it's something that should dictate what you charge, because like you said, what you're offering is is a particular value. And one approach I took was I I knew what I wanted, what I was aiming for in terms of earning for that hour, for that or for the duration, some of mine are 45 minutes. And I, I thought to myself, well, how can I keep the class small enough so that it can be fully interactive? And then I worked backwards from that. Okay, and I now know what I want the overall kind of hourly charge to be. I know how many students I want as my maximum capacity. And then it's just a straightforward division, really, to work out how much I'm charging per head. But one thing I also thought about is, what benefits can I offer people? Given that I'm doing this online, um, we are going to talk about things like managing admin. Mine's very automated and I use a, a learning management system. So I knew that I had really, it was really easy for me to, for example, show recordings. So I would record them, I give people access for a certain duration of time. So there were little things that I really added on and I used that to dictate my pricing. And when you're thinking about you know, what what benefits, what perks should I add on? How do I stand out in the market? I was guided by the parents, if I'm honest. I asked lots and lots of questions. I'm very active in my in a group that I have for my parents. And I put polls out and I got feedback from them as to what kind of things they wanted from a group class. And then I used that really to form my ideas. And then I had some ideas of my own. So I think when you're thinking about how much to charge, you don't want to price yourself out of the market as such. But at the same time, you need to be clear about who you want to work with in terms of their mindset as well. You don't necessarily if you if you want to go for quantity, then, yeah, you can charge a lower amount. You can aim for really large groups. But if you want to go for a smaller group, then to make it worthwhile, you need to charge a decent rate. But you also need to think, well, what kind of people do I want to work with? I want to work with people who do actually see my value. Yeah. You know, and I think I think that's really true. And I think the danger actually is if you charge less, yeah, the person paying is not going to value it either. And no, then exactly. the children are not necessarily going to work the way you want them to. I think if it is slightly, what's the word I'm looking for? Not, I don't want to sound like I'm saying it should be uncomfortable for somebody to pay. But if they see that it's valuable to them, they will support the child more. The child, Not necessarily that the child will know how much it costs, but they will understand that this is valuable. It's important. It's something that they should invest in it's got to feel like an investment I do agree yeah it's it's true I mean you know a lot of people talk about you need to have skin in the game you know if you're if you let's say you run something for free you'll get loads of people who will say they'll turn up and they they won't because they haven't spent any money if they spend even just five pounds on on you know paying to turn up to this thing you'll get a much higher turn up rate so it's the same with this that you know, your the what you charge does communicate a message. It yes. does communicate a look and feel. Um, if we think about the general consumer world, you know, you've got designer brands, you've got you know cheaper brands, and it's all designed to communicate an exclusivity or a, a look and feel and to connect with people. And really, this is no different in a way. I'm not saying that we need to be designer and we need to be no. cheap and there needs to be that kind of structure. 
but it definitely communicates a message. And I think first and foremost, you need to decide what that message is. Um, you know, if you feel like, you know, I'm really passionate about supporting students from disadvantaged backgrounds, then that's going to influence your pricing as well. So it all depends on who you want to work with, why you want to work with them, what kind of message and value proposition you want to put forward. Before we move on to um, sort of the logistics of dealing with different attainment levels, is there anything you'd like to add? I mean, I think I think the issue about children, as you say, from disadvantaged backgrounds, I think what you would have to do there is obviously you would want to charge a different rate. Mm-hmm. Um, and interestingly, I do have a kind of um, a strategy if people say, I really want to come to your lessons, but I really can only afford this much or this much. I do have a strategy set up to support those people. You've got to be careful that you don't charge so little that you actually can't afford to live. But if you know those people can't afford anymore, there are obviously ways in which you can add to your income through support networks and grants and funding so that you can afford to charge those people less. That's the only other thing to add. Yeah, I think that's it. I mean, as educators, we sometimes feel guilty for charging money for what we're doing. It's really hard to quantify, particularly if you come from a teaching background where you get paid your salary, but you always go over and beyond. You know, there are no fixed hours to work. So it can feel really difficult. But, you know, you do need to think, well, why am I doing this? I'm doing this because I want to give myself financial stability. I want to, you know, I want to do things on my terms. I'm passionate about educating in the style I want to educate in. And that does take funding. You know, we need money to live. And so, you know, ultimately, you can you can really put your all into it as long as it is giving you the the money ultimately to help you fund do to do what you want you're passionate about doing another question that often comes up I get asked this quite a lot is that if you're starting a group class let's just say for argument's sake it's for GCSE students and they're all at different potentially different attainment levels how do you cope with that so do you have any kind of screening process do you have any streamlining process um what what do you do to cope with the different needs I suppose I suppose before um, a student joins a group, I do ask the parents to fill out a very short form and it has things on it like um, current grade, you know, from the last assessment. I'm very careful to to word how I ask about any specific needs. But, you know, if the parent is willing to divulge that information, say they might have um, mild dyslexia or something else that they feel is important to tell me about, I will then decide... uh, whether I need to investigate further. So often I'll have a phone call. And if I, I'll be honest, if I honestly don't think that it will work for them and they'll get enough out of the session, I will actually say to them, I'm, I'm really sorry at this time, I'm not sure this would be the, the best opportunity for your student right now. And I offer recommendations of other groups or other, other tutors, for instance. Every week I give a booklet and a task for to work through in the lesson. But I suppose within that, I, I put the booklet together with every student in mind. We have a common goal. Say we're looking at structure in AQA language paper one. We will all do the work on structure, but there might be more guidance for those I know who need it. And there might be an extra challenge for those who need it as well. Yeah, I work quite similarly. I mean, I I actually don't do a lot of screening beforehand because like you, I teach for the 11 plus, I teach for GCSE and 
regardless of your level, you take the same paper. Yeah. So, but what I do is a lot of differentiation in yeah. the lesson itself. So I, you know, I'll use traffic light systems or I'll say, right, choose your task. Which one do you want to go for? But I have designed them with students in mind or I'll give them different targets. And, you know, for me, that's quite important because what I have found is that when there are different attainment levels, the students actually all really benefit from it. Because, you know, let's say, for example, you've got someone who's on a much lower level than someone else. You learn a lot by teaching. And so sometimes I'll ask them, right, why don't you explain this concept to so-and-so? But equally, that person who might be a little weaker at the beginning, they seem to excel, like they seem to accelerate a lot faster because they're in that environment learning from other people. Now, when you're running a group class, as with most things, when you run a business, there is a lot of additional admin. Um, You know, you take a one-to-one class, you're multiplying it by however many. Um, Now, Charlotte and I, we do have slightly different approaches. Charlotte is kind of semi-automated. You're you're working towards automation, aren't you? Yes. You know, but what Charlotte proves, like you said, before, before this podcast, we had a quick chat. And what Charlotte proves is that you don't have to have everything set up before you go for group classes, you can evolve as time goes on. You can improve and tighten up processes as time goes on. Mine is kind of quite automated. I, I do kind of always take that approach. Yeah, but you're the guru of organisation. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bit of a technology nerd, so I do really like um, using tech and automation. But Charlotte, why will you share with us what? what you do I mean you don't have to go into the nitty-gritty as such but I really want to give people the confidence that look you don't have to have everything set up you don't have to invest vast sums of money when you're just starting this out it can it can just evolve you can build this up over time absolutely and I'll be honest when when I transitioned from teaching to tutoring and then from tutoring to -to one-to-one to groups I had no idea where this was going every step of the way has been a bit like okay we could do this next we could do this next so um, I'm, I am definitely at a transition point because I teach roughly 140 pupils a week. Now, now the way I invoice is I invoice half-termly and my half-terms are five uh, weeks. So at the moment, I've, I, I promise you this will evolve. At the moment, I'll be totally upfront. I create a template in Word <laughs> and... I number them, obviously, and we have a reference. And each invoice at present is created um, individually, but I do add information on there. So it kind of helps. Every half term, it takes me about three hours to do all my invoicing. But, you know, we're looking at ways in which, okay, we cannot keep doing it this way. We need to start automating. It needs to start getting a little bit better. Again, my transitioning is very much piecemeal. I do a little bit at a time. So I'm definitely not the finished article, but I just keep on working on one thing at a time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, that's the thing is that you, there are two, there are two ways to invest in your business and it depends where you're at, depends on your circumstances. You either invest your time or you invest money. So if you can spend the money on automation or, and it's not just money, you know, a lot of people don't feel confident with technology. And so it's about building that confidence and learning as well. But you are, you know, if you automate, it saves you time, you buy back time. But if you, for whatever reason, don't want to automate or can't automate right now, then you have to invest the time. I, it's one or the other. 
When I set up group tuition, I was already very, very busy. So I knew I didn't have the capacity to actually add more to my admin. And so the way that I do is I do, I invest in an LMS, a learning management system. The one that I use is Thinkific, but you know, there are lots of them on the market. With that, there's a front end. So you can have your own website on, let's say, WordPress, or Thinkific allows you to have a website as well. And essentially what someone does is they press a button, they pay for it, and it's all connected to my account, uh, to my accounts package. Um, you know, they put their credit card details in, and then they've paid for the course, and they're in. And, you know, quite simply, I, you know, all of the lesson information is through the LMS. They access the course. One thing I do whenever I start a new project is before I've even done anything, I create a bit of a flow chart and I create a flow chart to say, right, from start to finish, what happens? Someone gets in touch with me, right? How do they get in touch with me? How do I want them to get in touch with me? So that's what you want to kind of almost kind of control. So I use Calendly a lot. If people want to yeah. get in touch with me, they book through Calendly. And that gives me a bit of control over my diary. They don't just contact me. I don't really release my phone number unless it's for my one-to-one students. Then what do they do? How do they actually make that booking? And what do you need to do in order to make that booking happen? And so if you have that flow chart, you get this bird's eye view of the overall process. And then you can even take a semi-automation approach. So you can say, well, I'll automate this part, but right now I don't have the, the know-how or I don't have the money to automate this part, so I'll do that manually. So mm. you can do it in stages, but planning it beforehand does really help. And mm. it helps you manage people's expectations. So when they speak, you can say, great, when we put the phone down, this is what you'll receive and this is what will happen. So they know exactly what that process is. So when it comes to online teaching, um, I'm just going to move on to things like the interactivity. Yeah. A lot of people ask, well, how do you see students work? Now, you and I both teach English, but, yeah. you know, you can have maths, tuition, what, you know, lots of different subjects. What, how do you tackle that in terms of getting feedback from the students, knowing that they're completing their work? Again, it's evolving um, because I'm a slight tech dinosaur and went literally from complete face-to-face, 14 lessons a week last March, um, you know, 2020, into Zoom straight away. I had no strategy, so I had to kind of make it up as I went along. And I used a lot of face-to-face strategies. So, for instance, with my – well, in fact, I even do it with my older students, my year 10s. If I've asked them to, say, create a spider diagram, I will literally get them to show it to me. And then they put it right in front of the screen and I have a quick look. If I've asked them to highlight something, I'll, I'll get them to show me. I also use the chat function a lot. So, you know, if we're trying to take ideas, but there's 10 in a group and I, they, we haven't got time to hear them all, I'll get them just to write it in chat and then we'll feed it out. And if there's any that I want to actually then zoom in on, I might ask that person to, you know, speak and explain a bit more. I use breakout rooms a lot. I'm very careful how I, you know, dip in and out of those. But again, it's all about expectation. That's really interesting. I I probably do it in a slightly different way, but we have some similarities. So, you know, I still do the whole put the paper up to the screen, to the camera, you know, and it's it's quite fun. There's something nice and kind of raw about it, isn't it? Yeah, it's very old school. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. And so I still do a bit of that. But so I don't prepare workbooks beforehand purely because when I first started, I did. And I thought, you know what, this is a lot of prep for me. And so what I do is I design the lesson. So I use PowerPoint as the basic kind of structure of the lesson to guide us through. 
but it's designed in a way that they can write down the answers and they can still follow that along. In terms of interactivity, what I do with both groups and one-to-one, so I use a, so if I'm on PowerPoint, I've got a graphics tablet, so I can write on there anyway, I can write on them on PowerPoint slides. Um, But if I'm using a whiteboard, so I, I, I've tried other whiteboards, but for me, the, the inbuilt Microsoft Ink whiteboard is, is really sufficient for, for English tuition. And so they can also annotate on there. I can invite them to annotate on there. But what I find with groups is that because there are so many students, what you think you'll, you might cover in that hour is, is often is less. Yes. So I always over plan. So I've got stuff, mm. but I never get through all of that. And also, you know, they read stuff out to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have two options. Not everyone does this, but parents either pay just for lesson time or they can pay for homework and my feedback. So also, I'm very confident, majority of them take homework. So I'm very confident that even if I don't see their work physically yeah. during a lesson and they're reading it out to me, I'm going to yeah. see the homework anyway. Absolutely. Part of my package is homework. Yeah. Um, and it is part of the expectation that they will do it. So as you say, there, there's, there's always going to be an accountability. But you're right, you, you're going to see evidence of the interaction because it's going to be there in the homework. Yeah, exactly. And I do set those expectations. So I do say, to, so that I'm not overloaded, I say that, look, if you want this homework marked, it needs to be submitted within seven days of me setting it. Otherwise, I just know I'm going to end up with these big piles and, yeah. and it keeps things flowing. It keeps them supported. Um, now, we're reaching the end of this of this episode. We're going to finish on, we've already touched on this, inevitably, we've already touched on this, but attracting parents and students when they are fixed on one-to-one teaching being the best solution. And we earlier, we discussed about how important it is to really put those benefits forward. Yeah. And one thing I will say is that you know, we were, we were talking about, you know, I, I see a lot of people say, should I, should I run a, a class if I've only got like two students to start with? My answer is usually yes. If you can afford to, then yes, because what you then have is something to talk about. You have something real to talk about that when you're talking to a new parent, you know, last week in my group class, one of my students did this and you can also provide proof and evidence mm-hmm. of what you're doing. And all of that helps you snowball that much faster. Yeah. Um, what would you add to what we've already discussed in terms of attracting parents if they are struggling to, to adapt to the whole group? Um, I think one thing that I found very useful is testimonials. And then I, I encourage new parents to read the testimonials either on my Facebook page, website, Trustpilot, Google. There's plenty out there. And I think getting real testimonials from parents who've experienced the group and children who've experienced the group on my Facebook page, I have a couple of video testimonials. Yeah, I did. I did something similar. So I launched it as a summer school to start with before it carried on all year round. And um, because they were recorded anyway, I had the recorded footage. And what I did was I just I I didn't include any of the children's faces in there. And I just created a collage of just a few different aspects. So if I'm talking to parents about the benefits of the group, I actually broke it up into demonstrating those benefits. So I chose the footage, the bits of footage that actually relate to that, because, you know, nowadays, if someone asks me, oh, if they've got a series of questions, I say to them, look, I could explain everything to you or you can see it for yourself. And that will give you much more confidence about whether this is going to be right for your child. And I direct them straight to 
the video and a lot of the, a lot of them will just book off off the back of that and so you know even from an admin point of view when you're thinking about that process and the conversations you're going to have with parents being able to direct them to something mm. like a video does actually end up answering yeah. a lot of their questions yeah. and it's it's proof rather than them just taking your word for it yeah and and often I'll just take photos as well and the more you drip yeah. feed look at these happy children sometimes I may even showcase some work yeah um, or some quotes from the kids anything which proves exactly what you do works and they're happy and they're achieving is the way forward yeah I completely agree right well thank you so much Charlotte I, I hope people have found that useful I know there's a lot of apprehension around running group classes but you know this is what you do exclusively now so it works it doesn't you don't have to have all the automation all the systems in place to get things going you can evolve as time goes on so yeah thank you so much Charlotte. thank, thank you. you for your time lovely to speak to you